You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out the deep, put out into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I get to share about one of my very favorite things to talk about. I asked this question. uh, I asked it this week to our Bible studies, and I asked, why are you here? And when I meant it then, I didn't mean it in the big philosophical sense of like, why are any of us here? What I meant was, why'd you come to Bible study that day? And they turned and they shared about it. Today, I mean, why are you here in the big mystical sense of it? Really, it's a question of purpose. What is your purpose? And it's amazing to me how many Christians can't answer that. And what we see here is Jesus talks about purpose. He gives these people purpose. When we don't know our purpose, we tend to go to one of four Ps. Politics, profession, parenting, or pleasure. Politics, profession, parenting, or pleasure. Politics meaning... Oh, some kind of social cause or some kind of issue. Not necessarily politics, but starts with P. Maybe you'll remember it. Um, when you think about some activism, some type of, of movement that you want to create, and if we say my purpose is in this particular result or this um, remedying this injustice, well, if you do it on like a national level, for example, you know the next guy could come in and, well, that's gone, and, or at the state level, it's gone, or the new Supreme Court at some point just says something else, and you know that it really is just temporary, and so your life's purpose could end up, if that's all you've got, falling flat. Or maybe you do something at your business. My, my mission is to help be more environmentally conscious at my business. Great. And then you're at your business, And then you look down the road and you go, oh, but what about all these other businesses? And what about the rest of Jeffco and the rest of Colorado and the rest of the Midwest and the rest of the United States and the rest of North America and the rest of the world? And it can just feel like, I thought I was doing a good thing, but if your purpose is this, if that ever does actually get accomplished, then immediately your mind can go to bigger things. And honestly, you can look and go, was that really worth it what I did? Because there's so much more out there. So if you think about just like this idea of activism or politics or some kind of social cause as the only thing that your life's purpose is about, eventually you're going to find that it falls flat. Or the other one, um, profession, your job. 
My purpose is to have a really good job, a well-paying job, um, be successful at my job. I don't know why, but I picked professional hockey players for some reason. Did you know that of the youth that are playing hockey today, 0.11% of them will be drafted by the NHL? And those are Canadians, by the way. It's even lower in the States. So of all the kids playing hockey right now, 0.11 will actually be drafted in the NHL. And I did not know this. Less than half of the people that get drafted into the NHL actually make it on the ice in a professional hockey game. So think about if you're a kid and you're going, my purpose in life, what I am called to do is I am called to play hockey. I don't mean to discourage you. The percentages are way against you that you're going to play in the NHL someday. But you might be one of those that does. And maybe you do and you achieve that dream and you get to play in the NHL. And then you know what the average age of retirement in the NHL is? 29. And then you got a lot of years after you and your, purchase, your purpose is all in your rear view. Or think about just not an NHL hockey player, just think about a job. You retire and they take you out to lunch and they celebrate you and you put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into the company and then um, they take you out to lunch and have a big shindig for you and then they all go back to work and you know what happens? Life just goes back on. It just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. What about parenting? That was politics, profession, parenting. What about the stress of, say, a mom? <clears throat> stress of raising kids. If your purpose is tied in how good or bad your kids turn out, you're ready for a lifetime of a whirlwind of emotions. You are, okay? Um, if you think about it, one author calls it with your kids planned, uh, planned emancipation, that we're raising them to send them. And so if your whole purpose in life has to do with the kids, what are you gonna do in 18 years? You're still a parent. Like, it, it, your role shifts, but if that is your purpose in life, you can see a lot of moms and dads that just feel empty when the, uh, when the kids are gone. Or what about pleasure? That's another one. Pleasure is really never enough. I mean, we're in Colorado. How many people have moved out here to go, I'm gonna go be a, I'm gonna go be a ski bum. I'm gonna be out on the slope. I'm gonna work there. I'll work the other half of the year, you know, working at a rafting place. It actually sounds really, really great, to be quite honest. Um, I'm from Texas. I know a lot of people that did this. And they would go and do it and do it for a little bit. And then over time, what we know about, about this idea of pleasure is um, the looking forward to something can actually be more pleasurable than actually doing that thing, all right? So like you can dream and dream and dream, oh, this is what I'm gonna do, my, my, my purpose, I'm gonna get out there, I'm just gonna have so much fun, I'm just gonna ski 24-7, and then eventually you kinda go, eh, maybe not 24-7, you know, less than that. It's still fun, but if that's all you're searching for, this is why people who travel go on vacation after vacation after vacation, and then while they're on a vacation, they're talking about where do you wanna go next? Like you're on, you're on one right now. Enjoy the one you're on. And it's always what's more coming. And so if, if we just go the way of the world and we say our purpose comes from those things, our politics, profession, parenting, or pleasure, we know that they're destined to be unfulfilling. I don't really know that, and I have to think through now. I don't know if any of the ones I just said are like inherently bad, but if you have something like that, you're some kind of social cause, you're something you're doing for a living, some kind of parenting, if you're a parent, or some kind of joy, pleasure that you might have, um, we need to tether those to God's deeper purpose for us in our life. And then those start to have meaning. So <clears throat> here's, here's all, I'll just give away where we're going today. We know a lot that Jesus saves us from 
our sin. Jesus saves us from judgment. Jesus saves us from hell. Jesus saves us from, but a lot of people don't know what he saves us to. Jesus saves you for his greater purpose. Jesus saves you for his greater purpose. Whatever purpose the world can give you, it will fall flat eventually. And Jesus says, I have a purpose for you that is greater than that. It's not just someday we'll get to be in heaven, although that's beautiful and and remarkable that we get to. This is Jesus saves us for a greater purpose even in our life today. And he does it like this. He takes these fishermen and says, you will now be fishers of men. He's taking them and he's saying, oh, we are gonna sew up the ante and you're gonna go from this business that you have that's providing for people, that's a good thing. And now you are gonna take my gospel message to the world. How did he go from this to this. That's what we'll see. And it starts in verse five. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake, probably Peter, James, and John there. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. I've actually been to the Sea of Galilee. We went on a trip and um, I got to read this text and another text while we're out on the sea. It says Gennesaret. Um, We know it as Sea of Galilee, um, most people in that day would have called it the, uh, the sea or the lake of Gennesaret. In fact, outside of the Bible, it's more often called the lake of Gennesaret than the Sea of Galilee. Um, it's really awesome. It's, it's way bigger than I thought it was gonna be. I kind of thought, I mean, if you look at it on a map, you're like, if I got dumped in the middle, I could Michael Phelps it to the other side. No, it is way bigger than that. And we're out there and they had like the fishing things and they were showing us how they did it and all that. It's really remarkable to see, but there's something about being out on the water and reading this and going like, I know this is true. I know this happened, but I'm at the place where it happened and you're reading about it. And there's something incredibly moving about it. In fact, there's um, <clears throat> this place, uh, Gennesaret, is a, there's actually a, um, there's a town right over there that's called Gennesaret, a little west of um, Capernaum on the, sea, uh, on the Sea of Galilee there. And um, in verse three, it says, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. If you go to the Sea of Galilee and you go to the northwest corner, there's a little place by, between Capernaum and a place called um, Tabga. And if you look at it today, the way it's kind of cut out of a little cliff, it looks like an amphitheater. You can, it looks like Red Rocks you can, without all the seats and everything. You can sit there and talk and the acoustics are really fantastic. And so some people think that when Jesus is doing this, he pulls out in the boat and he's at a place where his voice will, um, will really carry, perhaps. Um, verse four, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Let me tell you what just happened. This is uh, Peyton Manning were to walk in and I were to go up to Peyton Manning and I were to go, uh, hey, Peyton Manning, I've been watching you play. I know he's retired. I've been watching you play for years. I've got a few tips for you if you wanna be a really good quarterback. <laughs> when you're dropping back, you know, don't, don't trip and really, really throw it hard to the receivers, you know, and they'll catch it. And, you know, like me giving advice to Peyton, you would all look, and if you know me, you would say, first of all, very few people should be giving advice to Peyton Manning about quarterbacking. He's very good at quarterbacking. And there are very few people in the world that I should be giving advice to about playing quarterback. Maybe like a little two-year-old that comes up with a ball or something. That's about it. What just happened here is Peter and them are out in the water. And if they know anything... It's fishing. And here's Jesus 
who we say Jesus the carpenter. He's really probably more of a handyman. He's this handyman and he's teaching the multitudes and he goes out and tells these guys who are experts in what they do, here's how you should fish. And how did they respond? Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, we will let down the nets. They responded favorably to it. Can I just say, this sounds a lot like the world today to me. When you look at this and you think, um, uh, when we try to say, here's what the scripture teaches, the first thing people do is go, that was nice 2,000 years ago. Why don't you Christians stick to what happened over in Israel 2,000 years ago? That was good for then, but we've got it from here. That's not important today. It's not relevant today. That's the the mantra that you hear. And the reality is you're going to see this is the thing that gives us purpose. What does he say? Master, in verse 5, Simon said, Master, um, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, we will let down the nets. They respond favorably to what Jesus said. Now, the word for toiled is the word where we get the word mourned or cried. So now look at it. If you're thinking about crying, he says, we toiled all night. He's going, we were trying all night. Like this is desperation that he's doing. These are, we are master fishermen. We did, we did more than we were supposed to do. We were out there all night and Jesus, and here's what happened. And then Jesus says, go and put your nets down. And he says, we toiled all night. We took nothing. But look at his faith. At your word, we will let down the nets. If you've heard this story before or you just heard it read for the first time and you go, I see where this is going, just imagine being there. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled, that's Peter and Andrew, signaled to their partners in the other boat, probably James and John, to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. Are you getting the picture of what's happening? They are out doing their thing, and then they come back, and they're going, oh, we've been trying all night. And Jesus says, do this, go out in the deep and throw your nets down. And he's not going, I bet there's fish. He's going, there will be fish there for you. And he sends them out, and they go, oh, and I just wonder if they're going, fine, at your word, we'll just try it one more time. And then they start having to go, guys, help us, help us, help us. Get over here. And I see these two other guys running over and getting the fish and just pulling them and pulling them and pulling them into the boat. And then they get them in the boat and they've got to put it in another boat as well. And it says the boat starts sinking. There's so many fish that are there. But when Simon Peter saw it, verse eight, he fell down at Jesus's knees. I still think he's in the midst of the fish on the boat falling down at the knees of Je- at the feet of Jesus. And he says, depart from me. Why would he say that? He's saying, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. You are God and you have just done something supernatural. Why isn't, he, why isn't he able to be in his presence? It says, for I am a sinful man and you are Lord, O Lord. That's what he's saying. Peter understands who he is before God. And throughout the Bible, this is really important, throughout the Bible, Standing in the presence of the holy should naturally, it naturally evoked a response of unworthiness. Remember John the Baptist? There's one coming after me. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. Or Moses at the burning bush. Take off your shoes, Moses. You're on holy ground. Or do you know the story when he's up getting the Ten Commandments and, um, 
and there's uh, um, lightning and thunder and, and storms and everything starts to happen. And, and it says the people tremble. And then it says they started to back off. They went far off. They moved far off. And then they say, uh, they say this um, to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us for we will die. That's how they understood who God was. The book of Judges, there's a guy named Manoah and uh, his wife, an angel comes to say that even though you haven't been able to have kids, you're gonna have a kid and it's going to be named Samson. This is an angel, a messenger of the Lord that went to them to tell them. And Manoah says, um, Manoah says, we will surely die for we have seen God in the presence of the angel of God. Um, 1 Samuel 7, some enemies of God are struck dead simply because they look at the Ark of the Covenant where they said the presence of God was. What happens in the New Testament when angels, messengers from God show up, the first thing they have to do is they poof on the scene and they're like, it's cool, fear not. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid because everybody would see them and they would go, oh my gosh, these are angels of the Lord. When you're in the presence of something like that, we should have the response like Peter, falling on your knees, the midst of the gross fish, who cares? And instead, what can happen is we can, um, in the midst of, when we think about God, we can think of God as just my buddy, just my friend. If he was there on the boat that day, I would go, thanks, God, and shake his hand. It's almost like we're not equals, but there's almost a similarity to it because we can think we're pretty good. So I'm, I'm putting some pictures up in my office. I'm not good at decorating well, really anything, but especially like rooms and interior designing and that. And so Nikki said, get this picture, this picture of, um, picture of me and about 40 people here from Rockland we went to the Holy Land. And it's a cool picture. And she said, you need to get that. Go get a custom frame. And here's the mat. She took a picture of the mat. And she said, get this, uh, the, the wood, the frame thing around it. And took a picture of one she liked. And so I went into the guy and I was like, yeah. And I set it down and I said, I want this and make it fit this picture. And I handed it to him and I was like, oh, I'm so good. Because I didn't know, if he asked me a question, I knew I was in trouble. And then he did ask me a question. And he said, what kind of glass would you like? <laughs> and I didn't even know there were choices. So I literally was like, probably see-through would be better if you have some of that. <laughs> I didn't even know what to do. And so, there, and so he said, well, we've got two choices. He said, there is um, conservation glass with reflection control. And I went, well, that sounds great. <laughs> that should work. Let, let, let's do that. And he said, or, and he said, there's a museum glass, which is even nicer. And I thought, huh, let me think about these. I had no idea what to do, but I thought I don't, I don't work in the Louvre, so I'm probably okay with the other one. And so I, th I said, well, I'm, I'll maybe do the conservation glass. And he's like, well, he, he truly said, he's like, all these people though, do you have a lot of sunlight in your office? I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, I just don't know if in, in you know, 20 years their faces are gonna get all baked from the whatever. If you do the conservation glass, I was like, well, I don't want their faces baked. I can't do that. And so I was like, well, I'll do the, Museum glass, I guess, but I couldn't figure out what to do and I just wanted to know the price. And long story short, your faces are getting baked in my office, <laughs> all right? The price, it was very expensive. So I didn't do it. But I all, it was so much more expensive. I almost did though, and here's why. When he had the conservation glass with reflection control and he held it up and showed it to me, I went, that looks really nice. That looks really perfect, actually. I'll take that. And then he went, or the museum glass. And he held it up and you could barely even see that he was holding a piece of glass. And I went, oh. And then he took them and put them together like this. 
And all of a sudden, that conservation glass with reflection control looked dirty and gross. And I thought, well, I better get the museum one. I couldn't because of the cost. As soon as he spread them back out, I was like, yep, that's still going to be fine. <laughs> What's happening is what you're seeing Peter do is he's putting himself next to museum glass. He is seeing God for who he is. He is seeing Jesus and realizing that he is the perfect one. Listen, if, if I compare myself to other people that are conservation glass with reflection control, I can just look around in the world and go, I think I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty nice guy. I'm pretty generous. I, you know, I, I could start having my resume of my niceness and start feeling better about myself. But before God, we don't look around and say, how are we doing compared to everybody else? We look around and say, where do we stand before God himself? And when they see God, when they see Jesus, people just uh, bow down before him. And here's why this matters. If your view of Jesus is just your buddy and you shake his hand all the time and he's basically there to help you, or uh, you bow down before him. If he's just your buddy like that, then whatever purpose he has for our life and whatever purpose the world tries to give us will feel about the same level. And they're not. This is the God of the universe that says, I want to lift you up out of your sin and call you to my great purposes. All those different things we talked about, parenting, politics, pleasure, whatever, profession, um, those, those can be good things. But all of a sudden, what you can do is you can start tethering those to God's greater purposes. In other words, what are, you, what are you called to be? It may not be your profession. It might not be to be a parent. It might not be to just find pleasure and find joy or just change one injustice. It might be greater than that, that God has called us to be fishers of men, to be part of his kingdom that go out and invite people in to this story of Jesus Christ and what he's done. That's the big purpose. How do we do that? Well, some, people, some of us are parents. Some of us have jobs. We have all these different ways that we do it. Some of us are called to be in the public sector and to go out and to figure out how do we make a change, a broader change in the culture. But God's purpose and the world's purpose are not on the same level because the world is very loud about what they think we should do. God's purpose, making disciples, fishers of men, that can sort of fade to the background or seem secondary. Let me just say, it is the greatest purpose on which everything else hinges. That's what we're called to do. And here's what it was. It says, um, <clears throat> he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. It's actually an interesting um, phrase, that he, a little turn of phrase that he uses. It says catching men. He's talking to a bunch of men. You're going to go win other men. And um, the phrase actually has the Greek word zoe in it, which is life or alive. And he just said, you are going to go catch alive people, is what he just said, which may or may not make sense. Um, think about what they had just done. They'd caught live fish. They pull them into a net and now they're going to die and they're going to eat them. And there was a phrase back in that day that would have been this Zoe and then with people, the alive people, that was used for POWs. That you would go and you would kept, capture somebody in battle, that they would be out fighting and you would capture them and you would take them in and you would now imprison them. And Jesus takes this and turns it on its head and says, what you're gonna do is instead of this other way that the people have done it, you are gonna go out and you are gonna fish for people. You're gonna find people out and you are gonna bring them in and you are gonna help them know, um, you, you are gonna take them from their bondage and sin and slavery. And you're going to give them actual freedom. 
the opposite of what the phrase actually meant in the culture. And they would have gotten it. And you can see that here. When they had brought their boats to land, and here's the first step in following Christ, they left everything and followed him. Did you catch what just happened? Peter falls down and says, depart from me. I'm not worthy to be around you. And what does Jesus say? All right, come with me. I'll leave Peter, but you're coming with me. J.C. Ryle said, um, a religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. But we know this. Like if something doesn't cost us anything, then all of a sudden, like if I wanted to give you something and I said, the best news is it's free, you would go, hmm. What does he say here? They left everything and followed him. Now, I think it's some here, but this was especially prevalent when I, was in, when I was in Texas. People would sit in the pews, and if you were to ask them, why are you here? No one would really say this, but some of them would. Um, they wouldn't really say it the, as bluntly as I'm about to. But I am here. God has blessed me with so much stuff, with money, with health, with a house, with a car, with kids, with, you just go down the list of all the good things I have. And it's literally like they're here in church doing the good thing because I don't want God to take my stuff from me. And if I'm just good enough, and if I'm just obedient enough, then now it's like God is obligated to make me, or to allow me to still keep all my stuff. And what does the Bible say? Leave it all to follow him. There's nothing that I hold is more precious than you, Jesus. This is not that Peter goes and he hangs a little gone fishing sign. This is a new vocation for him. This is his new life's mission. Jesus doesn't depart from sinners, but he seeks them out, he recruits them, and he saves them. Simon is this uh, sinner commissioned to go fish for other sinners, but Jesus saves you and me to his great purposes. A couple different ways that we live this out. Let me just, um, let me pause and say this. For anybody here that says that sounds really great, but um, if you knew me in my life, and you knew how horrible I was, how I've railed against Christianity, how um, um, my, my spouse has been in church his whole life and I haven't been, and, or my parents, or whatever it is. I, I don't even know. We'll come up for communion. I don't even know what to do and dip and take. I'm gonna feel so awkward. I'm gonna be watching everybody else. I don't even know what Luke is. Like, no matter how bad or gross your past is, remember, Jesus goes and he goes to a bunch of stinky fishermen out in the middle of nowhere and says, follow me. And where do they start? Peter falls down and acknowledges who God was and then answers the call to leave everything and to follow him. That's what it means to be a Christian. I also want anybody here that may be suffering or listening online, suffering from um, any kind of depression or mental health or has ever contemplated suicide and sat around and thought, is there a purpose for me? Do I even matter? The message the Bible screams over and over is absolutely <clears throat> the purposes of God are bigger than ending one injustice or all the injustices in the world. Bigger than America, no matter how important they are, bigger than politics. And as I think about finding a purpose that God might have for you, um, you need to know that you, you might at the same time be the best and the worst person to discover your purpose. And here's what I mean. Um, <clears throat> you know yourself better than anybody. You know the things in your heart that maybe God has planted there that just need to get teased out and you just need to step into them and live into them. But at the same time, I don't know if you're like me that I can justify almost anything and say it's from God. 
This is where God gives us the local church to be able to say, instead of just, uh, you know, th this is my job that I do for a living, and can I do more for him with that? This is where the church comes around you and talks. We figure out how can you take that so it's not just I live and I retire someday and everybody goes, oh yeah, he was a nice guy. He used to sit here. All right, cleaners, let's go take everything out and get the next guy in here. How can you actually take it and redeem this thing that God has given to you? And so one of the things, I just don't trust myself, to be honest. When I was in Dallas and we were debating if I was gonna come out here or not, it'd be really easy to justify leaving Texas for this. Not sure if it was right or not at the time. And so I actually met with five different men and I sat down and I tried everything I could to get them to tell me that I shouldn't come out here and I should stay in Texas. And everyone went, nope, you gotta go, you gotta go, you gotta go, you gotta go. And I went, there's the church confirming something and it helps me know that I wasn't just biased and wanna come out here and ski and run around and hike and all that kind of stuff. The other thing I'd tell you is your sub-purposes in life, like what is your job or um, even marital status for some people and kids, like those may shift over time, but the greater purpose of discipling people, of helping people grow in their faith, of you growing in your faith, that never changes no matter where you go. But the other thing I'd, I'd um, leave you with is this. Uh, we want to really be a part of something big, and oftentimes um, the big things are really just um, the aggregate of a bunch of little things that we're a part of. I'm where I am today. There's a few men in particular that really helped out a lot, but I'm where I am today because of investments, 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 over and over and over and over to bring me to where I am today. I'm guessing that a lot of you are where you are today because some people have, maybe it's one person in particular or a couple in particular or something like that, but probably it's over time. God has just done a work, done a work, done a work. And so what happens is, as we live our faith out, we just live this little one step at a time. How do we find the purpose of God in our life? How can we live more closely to him? We pray before every meal. If you don't do that, that's a great place to start. Just a simple thing, one little thing that may seem almost like nothing. And over time, you start building these disciplines and all of a sudden, it forms you into the man or the woman that God would have you to be. Um, one of the other things I was thinking is, uh, um, you know, you walk in people's houses and offices and there's not a lot of, you know, we used to have like, when I was growing up, we had a picture of Jesus on the wall. You, you know, the one, that was it. We had it up on the wall. <laughs> and, um, and uh, I, you know, we had, we've had maybe like Bibles out and things like that. Well, now Bibles are on our iPads anyway, you know. But um, I walk into people's homes and I just think, I think they're, I think they're Christians. I'm looking at my home, by the way, and going, I think people would know. Like we put out the manger scene at Christmas. We've got a, some scripture up and things like that. But I was just, I'm sitting here thinking about, is there, is there a way you can take where you are in your place of business or in your neighborhood and just say, let me just go one little step. I, I wanna get across and I wanna, I wanna put scripture up on the wall. I'm gonna, on my desk, I just wanna have the Bible just sitting out and people will start to see this and start to notice it. And what you'll see, because I know people that do this, is that starts to spark conversations because people notice it. What is the little thing that you are called to do so you can take something from a job to a ministry, from a home to a ministry, inviting that person to church to come be here and meet all these great people? This is how it works when we give at the church as well. Sometimes I give my money and I'm like, well, do, you know, do whatever you want to do with that. But it realizes that I give and others do and others do and others do and others do and all of a sudden, now we're really starting to change the world. All sorts of, we're giving money to the poor, all sorts of things are happening as a result of just little by little 
by little. If you wanna find God's purpose in your life, can I encourage you to remember this? Fall down before him. He is not the one that we just stand here and shake his hand and that's it as though we're equals. It's someone that we fall down before and say, you are God and I am not. You're the museum glass, I'm the conservation glass or whatever it is. When I compare myself to you, I fail. But at the same time, we know we serve a God that says, follow me. Let's pray.